The following broadcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as a solicitation. You are listening to Finance in 3X, Episode 3, Passive versus Active Management. With former careers as options trading floor specialist and hedge fund manager, David's 30 years of investment experience chops through the confusion, dashes past the disinformation, and pummels the pundits. Amidst the mediocrity, you found a rare combination of education, experience, and skepticism. Welcome home. Welcome back to Finance in Three Acts. I am your humble commentator, David Roscoff, making his modest contribution to the ever-growing compendium of useful information dedicated to the ages through the magic of dancing electrons. My growing public has let me know that shorter would be better, so I will be using brevity as the soul of wit. Okay, last time we took a look at three great manias in modern times, and I didn't mention ever so humbly that I predicted and navigated the two most recent bubbles, tech that popped in early 2000 and the housing bubble that popped, I say, I pegged it August of 2008. The latter of which got me these few minutes of fame on Fox's Money for Breakfast. Just quickly, David, I want to give you the last word here. What do we need to do to solve this problem? I'm afraid there's not a whole heck of a lot we can do. We continue to look at the Federal Reserve as if it's a magic genie and granting us wishes, but they know as well as most economists that they're virtually almost out of bullets. The housing industry is horribly bloated. It's simply going to have to deflate over time. Yes, they will cut interest rates. We've probably seen the first of a series of stimulus packages just like Japan. However, the, the trough won't last 10 years that in Japan. It'll probably last two and a half to three years here in America. All right, um, David, I'm going to send you a pair cap at, uh, package of some chocolate and some flowers to make you happy. Thank you. <laughs> All right, I'm now. not depressed. Okay, good. I want to make sure you make it sound like it's so terrible. I, I hope it's not that bad, but I think... And judgment like this makes all the difference when it comes to active versus passive. Then again, there aren't many of me. So today, my friends, I wanted to look at the first crossroads of asset management, active versus passive. Some of you may be right at the foothills of the mountain looking up, and it can be daunting. Well, my mission is to try to break things down into more digestible bites, if you will. You know, so much of finance is shrouded in gobbledygook, and, and I think somewhat intentionally so, you know, like the stonemasons coveted their secrets, talking heads and experts traffic in obscurity to feign some <laughs> secret insight. You know, my own experience compels me into this foray, uh, my father deceased a few weeks before my 18th birthday, and I came into uh, a modest inheritance, and I came from an even more modest surrounding, and so I knew enough to seek professional help. Eventually, I stumbled my way into a major wirehouse and met a big producer. That's what financial salespeople are called. Well, he successfully boosted my ego through the ceiling for having the brilliance of even finding him. So after I turned over my inheritance, uh, somehow he didn't have time to communicate with me anymore. Well, not much of a wallflower, I appeared and I demanded an audience. And he took that opportunity to bandy about every technical financial expression he could think of while waiting expectantly for my response, as if I should know that at 18. 
Well, this left an impression on me, and that has become somewhat of a specter to remind me of how to practice my profession as a certified financial planner and registered investment advisor. No one leaves me with an unanswered question unless it's by their choice. Of course, not everyone needs or wants to understand how the wheels turn, but if they do, sit back because it is my delight to explain it. We've got three acts today and I wanted to give you an overview. We're first going to take a look at an equity index because this is generally the basis for passive investing. And thence to the difference between passive and active investing and then trying to make some sense of it all as we press into the future. So on with the show. Act one. Active investment used to be the only investment in terms of management. Buying and selling companies based upon premonition, analysis, a hot tip, or a monkey throwing a dart. Then enough information had been compiled over the decades that someone by the name of John Bogle uh, through Vanguard launched indexed investing. And this started out with the Standard & Poor Index and has uh, permutated over dozens of indexes, over dozens of countries. Of course, the most liquid and popular are right here in the United States. But the point is that these things have grown aggressively and now constitute about one-third of investment dollars out there. What is an index? It's a collection, a basket of stocks that are chosen to represent a particular market or segment of the market or market in general. The most common are the Dow Jones Industrials, we call it the Dow, the Standard & Poor 500, we call it the S&P 500, the National Association of Securities Dealers Automatic Quotations, we call that the NASDAQ. You've probably heard about all these three, but there are many many, many more. We don't have time to go into them, and you'll notice this is a shortened format. The Dow is our venerable granddaddy, having started way back in 1896. Well, the Dow Industrials, there are several Dow indices, but the Dow Industrials are 30 corporate giants, and you'll readily recognize the names, American Express, Apple, Boeing, Cat, Chevron, then we pass through some to get to McDonald's, Microsoft, and we end at Walgreens. Now, the key to understanding how an index works is that how are these constituent stocks in there and what's the weighting of each particular stock? And everything has to do with the capitalization of the company. Capitalization is nothing more than taking the stock price and multiplying it by the outstanding shares. So, for example, if the XYZ company is trading at $100 a share and they've got a million shares outstanding, then the market cap of the company is 100 times a million or 100 million. And so as it regards their place in the index, let's look at them relative to another company. Let's just say the ABC company is trading for $80 a share and they similarly have a million shares outstanding. Well, their market cap is going to be $80 million. And if they're both in the same index, the $100 million company, the XYZ company, is going to have a larger proportionate position. And that simply means that if something moves the larger company, the index will move more substantially. And frequently, in indices with 
a few constituents like the Dow Jones, a big movement in one company can cause a majority of the movement in that index. For better or for worse, over time these things kind of normalize out, but on a day-to-day -day basis, the ones that have fewer component parts are much, much, much more volatile based upon the movement of an individual equity. Now, this is letting the market or the individual investor or the aggregate of everybody determine what's going on, right? The capitalization, there's no opinion here other than buying or selling. There's no analysis going on. If money flows into a company, their share price increases, their capitalization increases, and their relative position in the ranking of all companies increases. So we are looking at three basic U.S. stock indexes, which are the Dow, the S&P 500, and the NASDAQ. And although these are different, of course, otherwise they wouldn't be separate, they all use market capitalization as a, a barrier to entry and as the force that moves them up or down. They're not always completely independent. I mean, many stocks traffic across two or all three of the indices, such as Microsoft. Well, it, the indexes are passive, except that they are dynamic insofar as constituent fund, constituent companies move around. And if their capitalization rises, their share price rises, they are going to be moving up in the ranking or they're going to be moving into one of these indices. And conversely, if their share price is continuing to fall, they are going to be lowered in their ranking or eventually excluded. In this way, right, the, it's passive because everyone's participating in the purchase and sale of these companies. There's no analysis. There's no wondering if these things are going to do well in the future. Their prospects are sound based upon the appetite for the company. That doesn't mean they're, they're always there forever. Of course, companies rise and fall. And capitalization is the key component to getting into C. So among the three leading, the S&P is by far the most popular, the most ubiquitous as a benchmark, and for good reason. Right? The 500 companies included in the S&P 500 represent over 70% of the total market capitalization of all stocks traded in the U.S. So this is the broadest measure. This is the best encapsulating measure of what's going on in U.S. equities. And it kind of reminds me, as a reference of our last episode, we explored the South Sea Trading Company bubble. And at one point, that company, one company itself represented over 50% of Britain's capital markets. Acts two. Now, you can see that there's an ever-growing popularity of index funds, and there's a reason for it. Right? There's lots of literature which corroborates the fact that passive wins over active in a great majority of time, but it's not as cut and dried as you might think. So let's take a look at a few studies. A Berkeley study, for instance, which uh, ended in 99 and 203, found that only 29% of the active managers outperform the S&P. And keep in mind, too, that they've got to compensate for their own fees. So they've got to outperform net of their fees because it's what the client gets. However, two later studies commissioned by Vanguard and Morningstar, one ending in 08 and the other one ending in 13, demonstrated dramatically different results. 
and they showed their active fund managers beat the S&P 63% of the time in the 2008 study and 45% of the time in the one ending in 2013. Well, one of the reasons that they figured out for these studies uh, for the relative performance was that a manager can actually do what he wants, right, within a certain purview. And so there are growth companies which are expected to continue to grow and you don't worry about their earnings as much. And there are value companies who aren't growing so much and you do worry about their value. So when times are getting slow, a lot of managers that outperform would switch from growth to value. And this is just something that a passive fund can't do because it's going to go with the herd. And last but not least, Act 3. Well, now you know that passive investing largely means index investing and that index investing largely means the standard and poor 500. You've got a little bit of information as to if active management is ever better than passive. And in the studies that I've brought to your attention, more than uh, an overall virtue of one over the other, it seems to me that there's the element of timing. And we just have to look back to our recent past. We've lived through two colossal bubbles, one threatening the republic itself. In that time, passive investing followed necessarily the herd as everyone became manic over technology and a new era that it was portending. Well, sure, the technology that was heralded during that time is with us today and has benefited our lives, unquestionably. However, being a passive investor, you're going to follow the herd as they dance up the hill and eventually teeter over the edge. Whereas an active manager has the opportunity, at least, to stand back and and conjecture as to whether the herd is correct. And in this case, uh, between 1999 and 2009, it's known as the lost decade for the S&P, otherwise known as passive investing. Now, I'm not a fund manager, I'm an investment advisor, and I use funds as a medium for my clients. And I can tell you that the period between 1999 and 2009 was a very nice one for me. And that's because I've got the prerogative to stand back and be a contrarian. I've got the prerogative to look for mispricing. Whereas passive investing is simply going with the crowd where the money is flowing. The more money that flows, the more power that particular constituent stock has in the index. So in a calm time without a bubble, it makes a strong case for the absence of any kind of a management fee. However, if you're coming to a colossal mispricing or mania, which most people don't recognize at the time, when things are good, you know, the animal spirits take over and we assume that they're going to stay good. And when things are bad, of course, we want to not even look at the account statements and just get on with life. So that's active versus passive. Another thing I'd like to look at is just how common passive investing is becoming, right? We talked about the fact that it's graduated from 20% to 33% or so now, and it looks like that trend is continuing. So what happens if instead of one-third of the assets going to passive management, two-thirds or more go there? What does the world look like? Because, come on, it's not just pension accounts anymore. These are uh, have permeated insurance products and annuities, life insurance, things like this. That They're just everywhere. 
And that's because the markets are so deep, they can't be corrupted with purchasers or sales. Everyone's comfortable with the whole idea. And of course, the costs are at a minimum. Well, what if we're at a, an overwhelming number of dollars going into passive funds? What does it mean? It means the crowd is dictating everything that the crowd is participating in. Right? As people buy individual stocks, they move through the indices. The indices move in proportion to the optimism or pessimism of the public. And this seems to me to lead to greater opportunity for mispricing and calamity. It seems to pad the deck a little bit. And what should keep that in balance is that the number of active managers would be diminishing, but they should have more opportunity to capitalize on on counter trends and and also on mispricing that they see at the time. So for now, my objective was to give you an overview uh, as objectively as I can of passive versus active. And it seems that it has a lot to do with the time period in which you are participating, whether that's going to be relatively smooth or tumultuous as to whether you're going to benefit from passive or active management. And of course, it entirely depends upon the active manager. And the fact that most active managers often don't outperform the S&P, it's not just the fees that are involved. Oftentimes, a manager will be compelled to stay within a certain percentage of the S&P for want of his career. And that is not to take too big a flyer, thinking that he could start selling well in advance of what he thought was a market top. These are just factors out there. And it's all in your lap to decide. Well, thank you for spending a few minutes with me. I trust that you have a better understanding of the concept of passive versus active management and the, the relative benefits or liabilities of each, and that this helps you skip along your financial journey ever happier. I look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you so much for sharing part of your day with us. Tune in next week for another action-packed excursion into finance in three acts. Thanks in advance for your suggestions for future podcasts and your review. Until next time, ciao.